This morning, continuing in our uh, We Believe series and uh, going through our statement of faith and, and uh, highlighting various parts of it. And as I'm opening up the, the scriptures and things that I've got here in order, uh, reminder that the daily breads are here for the uh, December, January, February. And they're out on the counter out there, and they're on the table on the other side there where the sign-up sheets for the dinner and, and for, uh, well, both dinners, the, the Christmas dinner and the, and the men's dinner. And so uh, just want to make sure you knew they were there. First, like, I, like you knew, these came, we had these out. They came before the last ones for the, for, for the, the, the fall quarter. We had these out by mistake, but they're out in the right order now. Part of, of, of uh, the We Believe series that I'm going to share on this morning deals with the leadership within the body of Christ. And first, I, uh, just a, a reminder of where we were uh, even last week. Brad uh, shared uh, a message on Jesus Christ, the head, and actually talked about the church and then the, Jesus Christ being the head of the church. And I want to pick up where he left off. In a sense, with Colossians, we'll use Colossians chapter 1 uh, as our launching point this morning. So Colossians chapter 1, uh, looking at uh, verses uh, 15 through 20. Paul writing, he says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God has ple- was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on the earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The idea of making peace there is that idea of, of satisfying the, the, the judgment of sin that God had to have because of his holiness. We were not at peace with God, but through Jesus we are at peace. And so the question comes is, as we look at Jesus Christ as the head, the believers, us, are the body, how this plays out in, in, in the leadership of the church. And, and a reminder that we are, as, we, as soon as we become a believer, as soon as we confess with our mouth and, and, and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, the reality is, is that we are a part of the church, period. And when I say part of the church at that point, I'm not talking about a local body. I'm talking about the church universal, if you will, past, present, and future, all believers. In other words, the, the church is, is of, of all the believers of the past. It's all the believers of the present, all the believers of the future. And, and we are a part of that. However, obviously, we don't universally meet together. And, and so we, we meet in, in individual congregations in, lo, in localized areas. And so the question is, how do we 
do, for lack of better words, how do we do church? How do we get together and, 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 and share in the Lord? Because we're told that it's an important thing for us to do. And the part of that that I'm to share this morning is dealing with the idea of leadership, the elders uh, of the church. And uh, I was uh, reading a, an article written by a, a pastor by the name of Ray Pritchard, and he was saying that you know, people get concerned about, you know, do we, you know, why do we need so much information in our bylaws today and, and stuff like that? And he went on to explain because there are so many things going on in our culture that the church has to define itself more and more and more. But he says in even a simple way of looking at it, you have to realize that uh, if you have a building or any other kind of property, you have to decide how are we going to deal with it. How do we purchase it? And if something happens, if the church decides to, to move ahead to another, how do we sell it? Who owns the property? This type of thing. And, and so uh, we need to figure that kind of a thing out. Uh, beliefs and doctrine. What is it we believe? That's what we're going through, our statement of faith. Uh, who controls or owns the resources that the church has? Again, the property, the offering that we took this morning, who's in control of how that's spent? And there's a lot of different answers for this. So if you talk to uh, you know, different people from different churches, uh, different congregations, uh, and, and I, I just put it down here, many answers, you look at many models, if you will, of how to do this. Uh, there are board-run churches, where, and, and in this way I'm looking at this for the moment, is where uh, the, the congregation selects the numbers of people, not necessarily looking at elders and deacons as much as just people who represent the congregation who will serve on a board, and, and they get together on a regular basis to decide how to use the resources that the church has, the money. Kathy and I were part of a church, uh, briefly, uh, that, that had a board like this, and that basically every family or extended family had a representative on the board. Uh, you can imagine how cumbersome that might have been when you had an actual board meeting. There were, were, were a lot of people there. And the discussion could, would, would range because it was this board decided on everything, every month, what was going to be spent the next month. And that included whether, how, you know, how, and, and please, this isn't meant to be funny. It, it's, it's meant to see how, what happens sometimes when you get so big and cumbersome. Uh, how much toilet paper to buy? You know, uh, well, it happens to be on sale right now. But yeah, but we only have room for, for, for six extra rolls right now. You know? I mean, they would get into the detailed discussions like that. Now, not that that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's one way of, of church leadership that you can find out there. The other way might be a congregationally-led con church. I was uh, invited to, to candidate to be a pastor in a church where the church uh, congregation literally got together once a month. And they basically handled a lot of the major church business. They had smaller groups. They handled the toilet paper and the, that, that kind of stuff. But they also had, uh, if, if somebody had come forward, for instance, that wanted to offer their membership, they would be taken as a name, but then the name would be presented to the congregation, and the congregation would have a meeting and vote whether that person could be accepted as a member in their church or not. You know, and so it was, it was the congregational run right down to who would even belong 
in the church. But every decision had to go through the congregation. You can have a pastor-led church. Many of our churches today fit in that category uh, where the pastor basically says how it's going to go, what's going to happen, and when it's going to happen. And uh, he may have several different groups, committees, boards that are underneath him to help and support him in his ministry. But basically, he's the final authority. There's even churches, and I know you're familiar with this idea, that have a hierarchy system. They're normally denominational churches uh, where they'll have a, and I use the, the, the standard terms that you would find like in an Episcopal church or, or uh, possibly a Lutheran church, and, and that is that they'll have a bishop who is the head of, of a district or an area. And there are several elder pastors who are the leaders of the congregation who, who, who see him as their leader. And then within the framework of the congregation, there will be deacons and lay ministers and lay pastors who, who see their you know, pastor as, as their leader. And so it's kind of a, a hierarchy that goes down the list. It's interesting, uh, the churches that you might find in, in, in that group would be... Uh, uh, like, you know, Lutheran Church, Episcopal Church, uh, other groups like that, um, and Methodist Church in some cases. And in fact, it was, it was something that came back to mind as I was writing this together, putting this together. How many of you remember the, uh, a gentleman by the name of Hugh Beaumont? I see three hands, you know. Uh, if I said, leave it to Beaver's dad, Ward Cleaver. Oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah, now i got more hands. <laughs> okay. Uh, Hugh Beaumont, if you'll notice on that show, he was, he was always, you know, compassionate and, and sympathetic. And he wasn't one of those sitcoms where they, they make the dad look like a, 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 a joke of some kind. He, he had answers. And if he was wrong, he worked it out with his kids. And it was, I think, one of the most healthy shows on television back in the, in the 50s. Hugh Beaumont was a lay minister, ordained lay minister, in the Methodist Church. In one of those levels of their hierarchy, he was involved in it. That's where he was in that point in time. So you have all these different kinds of, of, of church government. And uh, Paul was even looking back and saying, you know, sometimes we get caught up with just following after a particular person. So-and-so or so-and-so. In fact, he made a list, you know, uh, the, the church of Paul or the church of Apollos or, or following after Cephas. Or, and, we, and we continue that even into the, this day. There are those who, who, who look to Martin Luther as, as their cornerstone in a sense. Or, or John Calvin or John Wesley. Um, Chuck Smith is a very contemporary one who passed away a while back. John MacArthur, John Piper, Charles Stanley. There's numbers of them who collect followings. People say, well, I, I listen to this or I follow this person. And these are all, by the way, great teachers. But they, they weren't looking for followers of themselves. I can remember Chuck Smith saying, I don't want any Smithites. I, please. You know, I, I, that's not what I'm looking for. It's not what happened, but it, was, it, it doesn't change the fact that he said, that's not what I'm looking for. It's not what I want. And I'm sure all of these men would say the same thing. Wesley wasn't looking for Wesleyans. And, and Luther wasn't looking for Lutherans. 
you know, and, and Calvin wasn't looking for Calvinists. It, you know, it, it's the people that come after who read their teaching and say, oh, I agree with that. And then something comes off of that. And sometimes it's one of these board congregation pastor or hierarchy groups that are formed around those things. So my question uh, comes down to the point of, of uh, do we get any help or direction from, from the Word, from Scripture? Now remember, as we, we put things together, we, we started with cre- the idea that uh, as we went through our statement of faith, that the Word is the Word of God. It is God-breathed. Uh, God is the Creator. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, talking about the Trinity. And so we go to the Word constantly to find the answers to these things. And so we're going to do the same this morning in reference to how to lead or what, how the church is set up for leadership. And what I'm going to share with you this morning, uh, I have to say, is it's the base that I have been working from since I became a Christian uh, you know, over 39 years ago. In fact, I, I wrote it down, 39 years and, and 106 days ago. Uh, and, and, uh, the, and since that time, through my own studies, through reading, uh, through going through Bible college, other teachers that I've sat under, I have grown in my understanding of, of what I'm going to share with you, but I have found no reason to abandon it or, or replace it in any way. And my understanding of, of, of how the church leadership works basically goes back to what's called the Restoration Movement. But the Restoration Movement wasn't saying anything uh, it was simply looking back to the Scripture to see what the Scripture says about how to do church. I think of, uh, of a, a guy who does one of these uh, uh, self-help tapes and, and, and one of these you know, uh, you know, speakers who, who encourages people and stuff. And he was commenting, he says, it's really interesting. He says, nothing, nothing that we have to say is new. Everything we have to say is at least you know five to six thousand years old, and uh, you know when we look at it, he says it's just that we put it into a new context and make it relevant for today. But he says we're all stealing from the past, <laughs> and uh, the idea is is that there was something established in the first century through the scripture that the church was modeling itself after, and the Restoration movement looked back and they said Luther got part way there, but they, he didn't he didn't go far enough, you know in the sense of, 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 of how the, to, to bring government together and the church and, to, and how the church was to run itself. Um, and so their desire was to follow the first century Christianity. And this was a group of people, by the way. It wasn't any one, one denomination, if you will, or, or, or one uh, particular group of people. There were Baptists. There were Congregationalists. There, there were Presbyterians. They were all part of this and looking at it and saying, why has church become what it is? There was a problem. The reason why there was even a second great awakening, you say, well, there was a first great awakening. What was that? Well, that was back with Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley in the, in the early 1700s. And uh, what had happened was that the dominance of, of, of uh, again, hierarchy-type type church, had, had, they lost the gospel message and were focused on other things, and they brought it back to the focus of Jesus Christ and the, and the gospel. And you would think, that, well, you know, just a hundred years later is happening again. But after the Revolutionary War, there was a great depression in the sense of mental depression and some physical depression. 
uh, economically because all of these soldiers came home and they didn't get paid. <laughs> they, and they were gone for long periods of time. A lot of them lost their, their, their property. The, they, they were in serious debt. Uh, they moved west. Dreamland over the, over the Appalachians and, and into the Ohio Valley. But the church didn't move with them. And then by the late 1790s, uh, even the church on the East Coast was somewhat empty. In fact, the, uh, the uh, Chief Justice Marshall, the first Chief Justice, said, we're in serious trouble. The churches are empty and the bars are full. Kind of sounds like some of our histories that we've repeated. And so uh, the second great awakening was, uh, again, the idea to restore to, to a, re a time of revival in the church, uh, and, 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 and then a time of church growth. And the, the, one of the foundational things was how do we look at church and, 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 and what are the, what's the basic uh, outline or, or, or model for church government? And uh, the outcome was that what you've been foundationally hearing over the last several Sundays uh, as we have gone over what, what we believe from the statement of faith. And so uh, the Bible, the Word, the very Word of God, God the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, creation, the fall of man, the fall of the angels, the fall of man, and the reality that man is helplessly, hopelessly lost, and how the gospel through Jesus Christ, the cross, the resurrection has rescued man. And the beginning of the church at Pentecost, is, uh, and the church and how it ID'd with the body of Christ uh, and with Christ as the head are some of the things that we have discussed. And today, uh, I'm just looking to see what God's Word says about the leadership of the church. And the church, as we establish, is His body. There's a number of other terms that we'll use, but we'll focus on that one today. The church is His body. All believers, past, present, future, as I already said, is part of the universal church. And Jesus has got a number of titles that used to describe him. He is the head of the church. He's also the great or good shepherd. And that was used last week, and that was, became the, the, the launching point uh, for what I was thinking in the sense of leadership in the church. Jesus, uh, in, in chapter 10 of the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, I'll stop there for a minute. Jesus off the top, is identifying himself as the door, the only access. There is no other way. The door. He, he, they must come, you must come through Jesus. And then he uses the term, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is hired at hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep uh, and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and, and he cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And so we establish a neat picture of Jesus, the good shepherd, and now we're using a term for us that we are the what? 
the sheep or the flock. And we have one shepherd, the good shepherd, and yet we have underneath that a term that, that shows up uh, periodically and, and, and you see it in writing and this type of thing. What An under-shepherd. What would an under-shepherd be? Well, that's what we're looking at today. Christ says he's going to build his church. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he and his church consists of, of, of countless local fellowships and congregations literally all over the world. And as the head, the good shepherd, he leads his church, the flock, and he raises up men to do the work of leading and teaching in his church. Familiar scripture for all of us, Ephesians uh, chapter 4. It, we, we have it in our uh, logo as far uh, even in, in, in our church logo. And the idea is, you know, starts with, with verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Who raises up or gives us the, the gifts and the, and the people that we need to lead the church and to teach? God does. Okay? It's not something that we develop. Now, we come alongside and we, we, we help it through education, all these different things. But, but the reality is, is that God raises up the leadership. term that, that he used here were, was the pastor and teachers uh, that we would look at as, as today's leaders, the, the idea of shepherds, under shepherds. There's another terms that we use to describe these uh, people are elders, bishops, and overseers. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is, is that all of those are the same title, they're synonyms for the same person. This where the hierarchy church, churches look at you know bishops, elders, and lay people, and this type of thing. The reality is simply that elders, bishops, and overseers, they're all the same person. In fact, they're used interchangeably by Paul. In the book of Acts, in chapter 20, he uses all three terms in reference to the elders of Ephesus. And uh, Peter, in, in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he does the same thing. He uses all three terms in reference to elders or the leaders of the church. The thing that I wanted to briefly look at this morning and just, and just read, and I know you're familiar with these passages, but it's the, what the leadership or the qualifications of this leadership is. And 1 Timothy chapter 3, or I mean, yeah, 1 Timothy chapter 3 speaks to this in the first uh, seven verses. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, or we could insert elder, you know, uh, shepherd, uh, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Important part of this. Not a drunkard. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with a dignity, keeping his children submissive. 
For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care, literally, shepherd, uh, for God's church? By the way, that tells you, again, that picture. What is his responsibility? To care for the church. He must not be a recent convert. Why would that be? Well, obviously, how can he be those other things and, 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 and not be a mature person? But the idea of a recent convert, he needs because he needs to be able to teach the Word, he can't be somebody new at this. He, Paul adds to it, not only that, that he might become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. We often think of you know, people with inside the church, but their reputation also has to be one of, of, of good character outside the church. And, and so there's uh, Paul's list with Timothy. Uh, he, says he has a, a, a similar list that he gives to uh, Titus in, in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is, uh, I, you know, he's talking to, to him. He says, I've left you in Crete so that you might put uh, what remi- remained in, in, into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Here's that element of being able to teach, too. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Is there a possibility that at times there's going to be things that hit the church that are not of the word of God? Who's responsible to make sure that that teaching does not come into the church? It is the elders' responsibility. In fact, going back to Acts chapter 20, that's what Paul was concerned about as he was talking to the elders in Ephesus. If you read through that, you see that Paul's telling you there's going to be wolves in sheep's clothing. Basically, there's going to be people that are acting like, talking like Christians, but they're going to come in among you, and they're not. And they're going to tear, what do wolves do? They tear things apart. That's what they were going to do. And he says, we want you to be alert and aware and and watching and protecting the flock. And so as you go through this, you look at the things that that you can observe. uh, And and these men are called by God. They're uh, they're normally observed and recognized in the church. In fact, basically already doing the work of, of a leader like that in a volunteer sort of way with no title. And, and, and just you can see them already acting and doing the things that, that a leader would do. When asked to lead, it's something that, that they, they, they turn around and, and it says to, that it's a good thing that they aspire to do this. But they don't do it, aspire it, because they want the credibility or the notoriety. They do it because they want to serve Christ. When we find leaders and, and, and a sense of time and training, then they, they are set apart. 
something that we haven't done for a, a, a long period of time, but we need to catch up with this again in, our, in, 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 in understanding, is to have a service where we actually ordain the elders, lay hands on them, and uh, say these are the, the, the men that we have put into a leadership role and are following I've, I've preached on this not too long ago, out of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. The reason why this is so important from my part is that as a pastor, I am a shepherd. I am one of those men, okay? I am not the shepherd in our congregation. I am one of the shepherds in this congregation. And... Within the framework of that, I, I know that God has said distinctly that he is going to hold me accountable to how I have led in that capacity as an elder. That's overwhelming and a little bit intimidating, to be honest with you. And any person that aspires to be an elder should be well taught in this picture that you are accountable before God in a, in a, in a heavier sort of way. Just as James in chapter 3 talks about teachers, and I think you could put the idea of elders, certainly because they're called to what? Teach. What does it say? They're going to be judged in a harsher, stronger manner than the people who they are teaching. It's a serious thing to take the Word of God and present it to someone. It's a serious thing to, to, to tell people uh, and, and to lead and, and, and to actually come together and say, this is, this is uh, what the Scripture says and what we need to believe. I know that some have wrestled with why has it taken us so long to, to put the bylaws together. You know, most of the bylaws wasn't too tough. It was putting the statement of faith together with more details so that we could be the, the you know, explain who we are and, and do it in such a way as to be, you know, accurate in the, in the Word of God. Even they are presenting the Word of God in such a way uh, that we are accountable. The church, you know, again, put in mind in Matthew, uh, where Jesus is talking to Peter, says that Jesus builds the church. Okay? Not, the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. The church is important to God. I think Brad really emphasized this last week really, really well. We are the bride of Christ. We are the, the chosen bride for the Son. Okay? It's, it's, it's no small thing to be a member of the body of Christ. It's an extremely honored, great thing to have to be a Christian, to be a believer, to be a part of the, the body of Christ, to be part of the bride of Christ. And we talk about, uh, when we get into communion, we talk about the marriage feast sometimes. That is where the bride and the groom come together and establish the, their permanent relationship for eternity with the new heavens and the new earth. The bride, the body, the, the church is so important that Jesus went to the cross to redeem us. 
Every year, I, I know I point to this, but it's perfect on the first Sunday especially of Advent when we talk about hope and the Scriptures from Isaiah. You know, you'll notice the Scriptures from Isaiah are around the, the tapestry there, and yet in the middle of the tapestry is Mary, the Virgin, holding the Son, again, a part of the Scriptures of, of hope. And yet, if you look very carefully, the star that's in the background there is, is the cross. The cross was there before the foundation of the world. It was, it was literally, in a sense, hanging over him even at his birth. And, and, and so uh, we have this picture. How important is the church? How special is the church? God has, has, has covered all the bases that he can to make sure that the church is raised up in a way that glorifies him, honors the Son, and blesses us too. And, and so it has nothing to do with our culture and ethnic groups. There's people who say, well, all the church governments should run according to whatever culture or ethnic groups that they're in their traditions. Some of that's certainly allowable. But there is a core, and again, this restoration movement that I was, was, was taught in, uh, principle was it is elder-led congregations. The elders of the individual congregation that take the responsibility before the throne of God to lead, to teach, and to, to protect. In a sense, you might say that they are to, you know, they're coming along and, and shepherding, they are, are teaching, they are feeding the sheep. In fact, Paul even uses, or Jesus even uses that word, the word to, to, to shepherd uh, with, with Peter twice in that three-time feed the sheep thing, uh, you know, uh, where Peter is, is told to feed my sheep. And so come along to, 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 to lead, to feed, and protect the sheep. I look at this and, 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 and realize that we still always come back to the principle that Jesus is the head. He alone is the head. There's no man on earth who solely represents Christ in any way, shape, or form. There's certainly a lot of talk when we have a, a Pope visit to the United States. He is an interesting Pope. I, I agree with all of that. He's, he's interesting to listen to. He's a bit of a renegade, it appears, within the framework of the Catholic Church. Uh, he may be a bit of a renegade in some other ways. As far as I can see, some of his teachings may be more liberal than I, than I realized when he started as well. But the but he does, he's not Christ. And he's not the sole representative of Christ. We are the representatives of Christ. We are his body. He is the head. Jesus is the head. But the rest of us fall in together. All of us, whether Pope or, or, or not, if he is a true believer, he falls into the same category of priesthood of believers. And joins us all with the reality that Christ is our high priest. Jesus, right, again, I read it just a few minutes ago, John chapter 10, verse 11. 11. Excuse me. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
And I just simply wrote this very personally for the moment. I said, this is who I want covering me. (laughs) This is who I want covering me. He's the one who said, if you seek me, you'll find me. If you ask me, I'll give you an answer. If you knock on my door, I'll let you in. Paul adds, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All of this is resting on his words, his works, and on his words and his work, and the work of the cross, and what he did on the cross. So ultimately, points to a very small two-word phrase or three-word phrase, excuse me, and that is in John chapter nineteen, verse thirty. It is. Head of the church redeemed his church by taking our sins upon himself and standing in our place, taking our judgment and dying for us so that he could say on the cross just before he surrendered to his, 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 his soul his, to, to, to God, he said, it is. How do we know that he had the power to accomplish all of that? Look at his empty tomb. People say that's not enough of an excuse. You know, I tell you, you know, the bottom line is, is that there's no way those men could have stolen the body. The, the, the followers of Christ had gotten away with it. They were too many soldiers with them. They were professionals. They were guards. They knew what they had to do. And I just can't, I still can't. It always amazes me to try to think of uh, seeing a couple of men or more trying to carry a, a, a lifeless body uh, while professional soldiers are in pursuit. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't make sense. And the other side of it is, is, is they say, well, they got the wrong tomb. It, 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 you know, if they got the wrong tomb, both the Jews and the Romans, the, the very next day after they were proclaiming Christ had raised from the dead, would have gone to the, the, the right tomb and see, to see if the seal was still there and open it and produce a dead body. tomb is empty because Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. He is the firstborn of the, of, of the resurrection that he might be in preeminence in all things. And when we come to communion, we enter into a relationship with him in such a way that we become the children of, we are the children of God and, and we share in the communion because of what he has done for us. It is a memorial to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the fact that he's coming again. I ask the ushers to come Pass out the communion emblems. Hold them until we've all been served, and we'll share together.
And the reality is, is that death is but a moment as we enter into eternity. Because death has lost its sting, its fear. You know, and people say, well, you're, you, you can't really say that you're not afraid to die. I'm a, I can tell you that I am not afraid of the, of the idea of being dead because I know I live in Christ. I'm, I have to be honest. I, I can think of a lot of ways that something could happen to me in the sense of death. And I, I, if I see uh, something, I, I, I will fear you know, the idea of dying that way. But I don't fear the end of it in the sense that that's where the sting of death is, the judgment. That's been taken care of for me because through Jesus Christ it is finished. And he painted the picture of communion for us that we might have something to remember what he has done and what he is yet to do for us. And he told the, 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 his disciples at the, at the supper just before the, he was betrayed, the night that he was betrayed, as he, as he took bread and after giving thanks and breaking it, he said, I want you to take this bread and I want you to eat it, each of you. And as you eat it, think of it in this terms: that this represents my body. It's been broken for you. That you might have life, you know that that idea of, of your life coming through him, and so we we take the bread and we share it together in remembrance that Jesus Christ became in the flesh for us. We take the cup as Jesus did at the end of the the meal, and, and you look at it, and you think of those words as he, he told them, this is the cup that represents my blood poured out for you. And he said it was poured out to purchase the covenant, the covenant of grace, that covenant that redeems us. And he asked us to drink this in remembrance of him and to do it as often as we gather together in remembrance of him until he comes again, where he will share it anew with us. And I believe that's a picture of the marriage feast. Let us share the cup together. Father, we thank you so much that we can rest with confidence in your grace, your mercy, your love. It is so awesome to know as we read in your word, there is nothing that can prevail against your church. The gates of hell can't prevail against your church. You tell us very clearly in Romans that there's nothing that can separate us from your love. Lord, we rest in you with confidence. Cause us to draw close to you, to grow in you, and to be stronger in you. Bring us, Lord, to, to your word and, and, and open our hearts and our minds as we study. Bring us in, in, in fellowship with each other to encourage and build each other up. And Lord, as we do, we, we, we join Paul's words, Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus, but not because we're so anxious to get away from the world, although I confess there are times where I'm anxious to be away from the, my, my body and, and the body that I have, this tent that I have to have your, your, your permanent home that you've promised. But Lord, the reality is, is that you will get every knee bowing, every tongue confessing that you are the Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and you will get that recognition that belongs to you and you alone. And we look forward to that day. And Father, as we leave this place, we ask, Lord, that you would cause us to be what you need us to be in our family, in our workplace, 
where we play, where we, you know, wherever we are, that we might glorify you and, and, and also, Lord, that we might enjoy you. In Jesus' name.